We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Will Erskine booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. I guess the big news going on right now is everybody in the NATO summit. Uh, the premiers are meeting here. Sorry, not here. Meeting in Canada. Winnipeg, to be exact. <laughs> premiers in Winnipeg meeting and all the world leaders uh, at the NATO summit. And the good news there is uh, NATO has welcomed Sweden into the fold after Turkey agreeing to do so. Uh, Ukraine a little cranky, a little upset, because uh, although the effort is trying to be put forward to get Ukraine into NATO, which they never really wanted at the beginning, that's what, what this wasn't, uh, it's not what this was about. It was about the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. They weren't even trying to get into NATO. All of a sudden now want to, uh, but the president, uh, President uh, Zelensky, is concerned there's no timeline here because there's people that are uh, leaders that are concerned if uh, Ukraine gets pulled in uh, to NATO right now, then all of a sudden this escalates because all NATO countries, including air power, the full flight of war, uh, will come to Ukraine's defense. Uh, not that Ukraine doesn't need that, but many are worried that signals World War III. So uh, some very dicey situations going on there. Uh, the prime minister there as well, uh, talking, uh, you know, making news domestically, saying doubling this, doubling that. He's really not promising anything more. And a lot of that is for domestic uh, playback here. Uh, well, NATO leaders back there are hammering him for just not stepping up to the plate. And, you know, just the typical old story uh, that we hear. So uh, that's what's happening uh, in the NATO meeting, we'll talk about that throughout the course of the afternoon. Closer to home, all the premiers meeting in Winnipeg and cost of living on uh, the forefront. Also, health care, leftover uh, business from uh, the global pandemic. Also going to be chatted about and violence, criminality, which is making an impact across the country. And many are alluding this to just, you know, really, really loose border controls where guns are getting across the U.S. border. Uh, the prime minister answers that by having a handgun ban in Canada, which really doesn't address the border situation. And, of course, parole, people being out who shouldn't be, uh, be out. And the latest example of that, the latest example of that, the TTC uh, stabber that we saw uh, that just horrific video of, uh, again, arrest warrant out uh, for him uh, on bail and such. So uh, many are, are just shaking their head and saying, what is going on here? As it seems that um, those that are doing all the work, those that are law-abiding abiding citizens, those that are paying the majority of the taxes, uh, nobody's caring about us. It's, it's, about, it's about those that go off the rails. It's about... Uh, it's about criminals' rights and, and so on and so forth. And the Paul Bernardo situation is a perfect example of that. And many people are wondering why some are calling this country broken. Uh, and here's another example of that. It'll be interesting to see what that premier's meeting uh, does uh, end up proving to be fruitful on in which issue and, and how they get a handle on it. But again, here's hoping that they continue uh, whacking away at the health care because that is and was a massive issue uh, during the pandemic, and we have to make sure we fix that as well. But then again, you know, since 
we're out of the pandemic, post-pandemic, which, see, you know, that consumed everybody. But since then, it's the high cost of living. All of a sudden, your grocery bills have gone through the roof. Your, you know, your homes, your heating, your homes, you know, all of that stuff, utilities and, and such. Uh, all of a sudden, affordabil- affordability has become an issue in the, the post-pandemic environment and as well, violence, criminality. And we're seeing it on transit systems in, in uh, large major cities and obviously tent cities, tent encampments, which are not just happening in Hamilton. They're happening in many Small towns, not just big cities uh, across the country. And again, as I keep saying, whenever we talk about this issue, winter's coming, although we're enjoying summer sunshine right now. Uh, winter is coming. Where do we go with this issue? And, you know, it's not about handouts. It's not about handouts. People don't need a handout. They need a hand up. People don't need fish. People need the means to fish. And, 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 and instead we're just, well, here's your grocery rebate to, you know, however, 11 million Canadians that need it. And what does that say? So again, Canadians don't want a handout. They don't want charity. They want a hand up. They want an opportunity. They want a chance to, to have a good job that pays a reasonably good saddle salary so they can build, uh, so they can buy a home. What happened to that? We have lost that. Why? And don't give me this crap about society has changed. No, it's not. It's mismanagement. It's failing to see over the last 30 years how we have failed to address the real core issues of people. And we haven't done anything with infrastructure. But we're saving the planet. We're saving. You know what? Guess what? The planet will always need saving. There'll always be poor people. There'll always be people that need our help up. Uh, there'll always be people who are who don't have a job. That's just, that's society. We're a land of immigrants. Everyone starts out with nothing here, it appears. So like, you're never going to rid the world or the country of that. So let's have some leadership. Let's have some management that gives people, both young and old, some hope. Enough handouts. Give us some hope. And, 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 and a job and a future and, and something we can look forward to instead of where our next meal is coming from. And that seems to be the sunny ways world that we've been living in. You're tired of the politics, you're tired of the BS, you're tired of the high prices, tired of just getting so difficult. Life is hell. And then there's pickleball. Oh, pickleball, pickleball. What the heck is it? Ah. I don't know. I remember when I was a kid in Woodshop, we'd make um, sort of like giant ping pong um, uh, table tennis rackets, you know, and we'd just take a tennis ball and whack it up against the side of the school thing. And we, it was sort of like handball, paddle ball, I think we called it. And I guess pickleball, I, I don't know where it's got its origin. Let's ask Carolyn Buck, president of Pickleball Hamilton. Yes, there is a Pickleball Hamilton, and you're hearing about it now. Carolyn, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thank you. Everything's great. Thanks. What is the history of pickleball? How did it start? What is it? Okay. It's not a real thrilling story, but it starts out in 1965 with a guy that was trying to entertain his family at the cottage. And he basically used some a net and some paddles that he had around the house, made up the rules. And funny enough, the name pickleball, it comes from, from what we hear, it's named after his dog, Pickles. Really? Wow. Yes. Why, that's amazing. So why is it, why are we talking about it so much now? What has shot this through the roof? You know, I think it's, it started out obviously as a sport for older people. 
because a lot of us, let's face it, myself included, we work all our life. We sit, you don't get a lot of time to do everything. Pickleball is presented as something that's easy to do. The learning curve is small, really. And the equipment required, not a lot. So it's just a, a great way to get out, have fun and meet people. So how do you play, explain the court scoring, how it works? Oh, scoring. Okay, that's the most complicated thing for most people. But the court itself is actually a bit smaller than a tennis court. Um, it's like 22 by 44. Um, and we have what we have. You'll see in a tennis court, you've got the two sides. We have what we call a non-volley zone or commonly known as the kitchen at the front. Uh, that's what my wife from- said. My, my wife said, say to Carolyn, stay out of the kitchen. Stay out of the kitchen. She knows what she's talking about. You don't <laughs> want to go that kitchen. That's what I tell my husband. Get out of the kitchen. But basically, you're, you've got two teams. It's generally played doubles. It's a You can't play singles, not very often. But the idea is to get to 11. Uh, the points are you only gain a point when you're serving. So right. it can take so similar a to, while. Similar to volleyball in that respect. Similar, Yes, exactly. Similar to volleyball. So the idea is to start off at the baseline, get to your non-volley zone, kitchen zone, line zone. And the game is generally played from there. Uh, so just, you, you do end up going back on occasion, but you play right from the, from the non-volley zone. So it's a net game, really. Not a lot of running involved with it so uh and again a much smaller version of a a tennis court so as you mentioned less moving around although uh you know what i made me want to do this today i heard over the weekend that there's like an increase or a spike in pickleball related injuries as well and you know as you said it's easy whatever but it's still a a you know a a lighter version of tennis so the same injuries the same rules will apply you got to stretch and such Oh, yeah, exactly. We've seen a few injuries uh, at our court, of course. Um, nothing too major. And, and to be fair, we have a club right now of 500 people and a waiting list now. So we're lucky. I've seen a few people. Most of it's, um, I would say, sprains and strains. And again, it comes from most of us who, in our working life, you commute, you sit all day, you commute, you don't have time. So then you want to get back into something. Yeah. And we lose that getting ready. We lost that that muscle tone over time as well, mm. right? And the best thing I'm going to say when you get to the pickleball court is, come on, come on, let's play. Let's go get your racket. And we forget to stretch. Yeah. And it, it's it's a big thing, but we try to stress it. We try to stress safety uh, for pickleball. Anybody who plays pickleball, sorry, you can't wear your running shoes. You're going to have to get a pair of pickleball shoes. Which what What's a pickleball shoe? Whoa, whoa, what's a pickleball shoe? I was just going to say, basically, let's just say a pickleball shoe is a tennis shoe. Right. It right. needs support on the side. You need that that stiff um, shoe. And part of our club's mandate a couple of years ago, we got a we got a grant and we've got some videos online about how to pick a pickleball shoe. And that was so, done by a, we have a professional pickleball player, Matthew Kalmoto. And it, with this grant, we made some some videos about pickleball safety and picking your pickleball shoes. So what if I just tie up my work boots really tight towards the top, the oh, ankle? That, no, you know what? It would be interesting to see, but I wouldn't allow you to play. <laughs> right. It's not so, safe, Scott. No, no, it's not safe. So, uh, so let's talk about the scoring. We've only got about a minute left. So, and I said similar to volleyball, similar to uh, similar to tennis. So you can only score when you serve. So you've served, and the other team uh, can't hit it back over the net. Therefore, a point for you. Okay. So what happens then is the score then would be one for you, zero for the other team, and you're the first server. Right. So it's zero one one, and that's and then if you score again, then it becomes you move to the other side of the court is two zero one. 
and you oh, can now, always... now, now, now my ears are going up like a retriever. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting complicated. That is the hardest part for people to understand. Honestly, it is. Um, but once you get it, it makes a lot of sense. But they're also we also do play your typical rally scoring occasionally to right. make the game go quicker. And, and that, so you've got 500 members and there's a waiting list to get on for Pickleball Hamilton. Yes, there is. So more, so more courts on the way. How many do you have in Hamilton? Right now, okay, right now for our club, um, currently we have 10 courts that we're using. Uh, six are in great shape. Six are in not such great shape. We've actually closed two of them because they need, right. need some repairs. So we're working on that. Yeah. That's for our courts up on uh, the mountain uh, at to Upper Wentworth and Mohawk. But the city also has Confederation Park. And they have 10 great courts down there with great Nice. Money. All right. So, so if we want to try it out, great place to go. And the rec centers are, are a perfect way to introduce yourself to it. And if we want more info about Pickleball Hamilton, where do we go? Pickleballhamilton.com. And, like, are you guys serious? Are you, like, do you have, like, championships and all that sort of stuff? Oh, we do. We, we had our club tournament. Uh, that was a great time. We get from, right from beginners right up to 4.5 level, which is a good good level. We also have upcoming on um, August 12th and 13th, we have what we call the Steel Town Showdown. And we're going to get probably 350 to 400 pickleball players from Ontario and the northern United States, other places in Canada, to come play. You'll see some fine pickleball during that tournament. It'll run it, over two days. It, sound, it sounds way more exciting than shuffleboard, that's for sure. And it is you obviously know, growing. A good pickleball <laughs> game can have you on the edge of your seat. We've got Pro Pickleball is taking off, and we have a couple of pros associated with our club now. So it's very exciting. Carolyn Buck with us, president of Pickleball Hamilton. It is picking up their website, pickleballhamilton.com. But be prepared to wait. It's it's a game that's on the grow. Uh, Carolyn, good luck. Thanks for the time. Be well. Great. Thank you. Take care. We've been talking a lot about post-pandemic life, whether it's uh, inflation, uh, affordability, um, everything, housing. And, and how we move forward on this. And we've been talking an awful lot. And, you know, I was just thinking about this this weekend, over the weekend, and I saw a, an article on it. And everybody wants more immigration because we need more people. We need more jobs. The fertility rate, not what it was. People are retiring. So there's a need for workers. Uh, but also what we're forgetting here is we've got uh, such a severe housing shortage that we have tents popping up in not just big centers, big cities, but small suburbs and towns uh, right the way across the country. Uh, we have a healthcare system that's suffering. How do we balance this when there's going to be an even greater demand than what there is? And we, we remember during the last election, all three political main political parties, four, including the Greens, were going to build more housing and we knew, we know that it was environmentalists, people worried about urban sprawl, nimbyism that brought us to this problem in the first place because nobody's wanted to build a damn thing for the last 30 years. So where are we now as housing in Hamilton and across the country it continues to grow? A recent report from Smart, Smart Prosperity Institute shows that we are losing skilled home builders as well because people who build the homes can't afford to live in the city they're building them in. Let's bring in Mike Collins Williams, CEO of West End Home Builders Association, and with us and with us now, Mike. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. Thanks for having me. 
So, Mike, we, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, we remember the political parties and now the feds and everybody's jumping in. And it's build, build, build. We got it. Where are we now? What is happening? Our boots hitting the ground. Our hammers hitting nails. What's happening now after all this talk? It's a great question. And there is a lot of talk. And, and you sort of hit the nail on the head um, in your introduction that the pressure is growing. We've got a rising population at the same time as construction is actually slowing, which is an absolutely devastating mix for the housing market. And, and that pressure is growing. Canada's population grew by a million people in just a year for the first time ever since Confederation. We just hit a population of 40 million in June. And of that million new Canadians, half a million of those settled in Ontario. So, you know, the, the, the pressures are growing while the construction is slowing. Why is construction slowing? Hard construction costs are actually up about 54% uh, over the last four years since just before the pandemic in 2019. You know, there were obviously a lot of supply chain disruptions during the pandemic, and most of those have sorted themselves out. But the inflationary pressures seem to have hit construction materials the high, hardest, and, and that labor pool is actually shrinking as, as a lot of people are either retiring out of the skilled trades or being priced out of places like Hamilton, which is why the West End Home Builders Association worked with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce on the report you mentioned, who will swing the hammer with Dr. Mike Moffat from the Smart Prosperity Institute, because we do have a growing housing crisis that's now impacting Hamilton businesses from being able to attract and retain the talent that we need to build this city or for, you know, the education workers to um, work in the schools for the future of Hamilton to be viable option for families with children or healthcare workers to take care of an aging population. It's, it is a crisis that is beyond housing itself, but in terms of putting a, it's putting a strain on the social and economic viability of our community. Mm. So after doing this report, do you see, I mean, build more housing, build more housing. How do you do this with the challenges you're speaking of? And, you know, you're still talking about hard costs. You're not talking about um, expansion, nimbyism or any or or getting permits to build neighborhoods or such. We're sort of in a perfect storm where there are a variety of different issues. There are the hard costs of actually building new homes. Uh, There is the lengthy planning process, which is impacted by nimbyism in local politics. Uh, And and there's the the taxation. Uh, The taxation on new housing, you know, it's practically a syntax, like the way that we charge for booze and cigarettes. About 25% of the cost of a new home is straight up taxes. I remember there... Which is split between the feds and, and the province, land transfer taxes, development charges, and the list goes on. You talked about development charges. I remember a while ago when the big stink was Toronto was going to hit you at both ends with development charges and such. Uh, and, you know, we need this for a growing city. This is long before a pandemic or where we are now. This is when times were good. And now it seems municipalities are relying on that money. And if they give incentives to, to developers and they reduce some of these charges, then the communities want it back from government because they become dependent on it. You know, the development charges do serve a purpose to build the critical infrastructure that we need to expand our community, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it has gotten out of control. Uh, The city of Hamilton, uh, to start the summer, just last week on July 5th, increased development charges by 16%. So that's a $10,000 increase overnight on a single family home, bringing the development charges from about $60,000 to $70,000. And if you're thinking of those sort of small starter homes, which really is a small one or two bedroom 
uh, condo apartment that a first-time buyer saving up might be trying to crack into the market with, they increase the development charges by 6000 from 33 to 39000 And you've got to keep in mind that mortgage rates are double what they were a few years ago. You know, the, the, the mortgage rates are around 6% now for a long-term fixed mortgage or, or a variable rate. And um, that really hits the pocketbook because it's, it's not always about the purchase price. It's about the monthly carrying cost in terms of what people are being able to afford. And our developer members are experiencing those same pressures. They're financing projects that cost tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So when we're talking about the cost pressures, it's very difficult to move forward and build in an environment where the construction financing is double what it was a couple of years ago. We you often hear politicians, you know, the catchphrase, affordable homes, affordable homes, affordable homes. What the heck is that? No home is affordable, no matter what your demographic is, no matter what your your, your price range is. We need affordable homes. We need attainable homes. But unfortunately, there's no such thing as affordable labor, affordable lumber, or affordable mm. concrete. The reality is that there are hard and fixed costs that go into housing, be it the materials, the labor, or as I said, that 25% of a new home, which is straight up taxation. Um, so we need politicians in all levels of government to do more than just talk about housing, but to significantly speed up the planning approvals process and have a serious look at that taxation. You know, it's not going to disappear, but we need to stop increasing taxes and perhaps even look at ways of reducing taxation on new housing. And Are you? Point, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead, Mike. Um, you know, we need to build, double housing production in the city of Hamilton over the next decade. That's what this report found. And that's what the provincial government has implemented with a 47,000 unit target for the city of Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton's official plan only is planning for 35,000 over the next decade. And that 47,000 target for Hamilton was made up before those immigration numbers that we started this segment with about the population increasing by a million across Canada. So all of these targets are actually out of date, given the pace of growth that we have. And, you know, these targets didn't start today. The 10-year target for 47,000 units, uh, we're 17 months now into that target. And, uh, you know, we're, we've only completed 3,620 homes in the city of Hamilton since the beginning of 2022. So, you know, we're a year and a half in, but we're 7.7% of the way through the target. So we've got a lot of work to do. Um, people are living in tents in parks. Does that, does that resonate with Canadians? Does that resonate? You know what? We're short of homes here. I sincerely hope so. I think that the it, it's much more visible today in 2023 um, what the crisis means, how it's impacting everyday uh, Hamiltonians, Ontarians, Canadians, and the pressures that uh, it is having on on families and individuals struggling to pay rent, struggling to save up for a down payment. And, and frankly, a lot of people are losing hope. And Despite the amount of population coming into Ontario, there's a lot of outflows where young people are are leaving. They're moving to Calgary, they're moving to Halifax, or they're leaving Canada altogether. So there's a lot of significant shifts in population uh, in terms of those coming in and those that are being displaced, and they're just leaving. 
Mike Collins Williams with us, CEO West End Home Builders Association, a report they've just put out for, uh, from the Smart Prosperity Institute and the ongoing situation we have, and it requires more than just talk. Mike, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a fantastic day. We talked about this weeks ago uh, when the public safety minister and the prime minister were just uh, floored that uh, Paul Bernardo was transferred to a medium security prison from a maximum security prison. And then we find out that corrections had advised him and his office, his staff, whoever. uh, what, what, What goes on behind the black curtain? Nobody knows. Uh, three weeks ahead of time, they were notified and then, or sorry, three months ahead of time. And then just a few days ahead of time. And of course, uh, the minister's not aware of any of this story until it came out on, uh, in the media. Uh, many are questioning that and, and how this all moves forward. Is it the staff's fault? Is it the boss's fault for not following up what the staff is doing? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies in here now. Daniel, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. So, Daniel, where are we with this story? Has anything advanced at all? It just seems that it's gone away. Uh, it definitely seems like it's quieting down a little bit, but I still think there's some room in the story left. It's still very much a he said, she said kind of situation we have here. Uh, there's been quite a few of those, it seems, of late. Um, is it the staff's responsibility to tell the minister what's going on? Many would say, yeah, that's their job. Or is it, uh, of course, the minister to make sure he knows what's going on in his department? I would say it's, it's the latter. The minister is responsible for his department, so that means every decision that comes from it, he, at the end of the day, should be somewhat aware of it. Should he be aware of the person who's getting released for petty theft? No, but someone that uh, has dominated uh, Canadian culture when it comes to being a serial killer, yeah, he probably should be somewhat aware that that's happening, especially with three months' notice given to staff and then three days. Anytime you have a high-risk offender like him being moved, Someone in his office should have been somewhat aware and had the common sense to pass it along. Um, the quote was out of the CBC article, not a normal practice for deputy ministers or deputy ministers to be involved in operational discussions. So, again, is it up to them to uh, is it up to him to come down to the staff and say anything new from correction services? Or is it up to them once they get the information to brief him on what's going on? It's a bit of both. Uh, he hires competent staff that should be aware of this and that should be raising it to his attention. I think any time a document that says a serial killer will be released should probably be passed on to your boss. So where does this go from here? Uh, at the end of the day, does anybody have confidence that any of these issues have been rectified, that more stuff doesn't fall through the cracks as we move forward? I, I don't think so. What we're hearing in Ottawa is uh, rumors around shuffling cabinet ministers. So uh, Mattachino, the current minister in question, might be moved on to another portfolio so that someone uh, with a little bit more experience and who people can trust a little bit more will come in to kind of clean this mess up so it doesn't happen again. I think that's probably the likely fate for this story. Uh, obviously, um, this is about Bernardo's transfer to the medium security prison. There's been lots of chatter. It's, it's even making the headlines, the agenda at the premier's meetings out in, in, uh, Winnipeg, uh, violence and safety, uh, danger on transit systems and such and bail reform, that sort of thing. Uh, obviously latest coming out from a, a, a TTC stabber who, uh, was again in the prison system and supposedly on bail and such. 
Um, is this, a, again, it just, this seems to be part of the on, same ongoing story. Is this, will this be a priority move, moving forward for them? I think so. I think that the government's really realizing that there are issues with our current system for correctional services in Canada, that people are, in some cases, are getting released when they shouldn't, and they're causing great harm on many communities. Um, it's also something that the opposition seems to be running with, too. And to be frank, it's something that shouldn't be happening. We should have, be able to have safe communities and we should be able to take public transit and not have to worry about getting hurt. So I think politicians are hearing people being concerned and scared. And I would say they're definitely going to be acting on that. How can you solve these issues when, you know, you don't even know if Bernardo's being transferred? Uh, that's a very good question. You have to be more involved with your ministry and really dive into it, especially as a Crown prosecutor. Medicino should be a little bit more in tune of what's happening internally and understand the processes. But at the end of the day, it's his job to make sure it's running correctly. And to be frank, he's letting down Canadians. Is too much responsibility being put on the staff here? Because, again, we've had these problems happen before, whether it's with CSIS, whether it's with prison transfers, whether it's whatever. Uh, it seems like the people who are supposed to be in charge aren't really driving the bus. It's the people in the back that are driving. Is, does the staff have way too much control here? Uh, I think in this case, I think the minister doesn't have enough control. He's deferred too much to his staff. Um, he's that, like you pointed out in your bus metaphor, he's supposed to be driving. There's no reason to have other people trying to direct the car for him. I think he needs to step up and say, I, yeah, I miscommunicated this. I dropped the ball. I wasn't aware enough. I will do better. This will not happen again under my watch. Do you think you'll see, we'll see Bernardo go back into a maximum security prison? I think that's where he deserves to be. So yes. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies. Daniel, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Scott, take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We remember a couple of weekends ago that uh, it looked like there was some sort of coup that was going on in Russia when uh, the Wagner Group, which is a group of mercenaries, uh, looked like they were turning on President Vladimir Putin of Russia and started marching towards Moscow, short-lived rebellion. Um, then uh, he took off the, the leader of the Wagner Group to Belarus, and that was kind of where it ended. And a meeting took place June 29th. Uh, involving commanders of both sides, and uh, it looks like at this point that's where it's going to sit. Um, what is well, what is bizarre about this meeting? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor, political science, Carleton University, and with us now, Elliot. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. So, give us an update on this story. Uh, again, as I set up, um, an invasion started, a coup of some sort. We don't know, and then an about face, and we haven't heard from the the Wagner Group chief since. Uh, update us now. Well, the key update is there's a gap in our knowledge. In fact, there's a gap all the way along in our knowledge. And this is, goes back, I think, to uh, Winston Churchill saying Russia is a, a mystery wrapped in a riddle wrapped in an enigma, or words to that effect. And that's about all you can factually say about this. We do not know the nature of the deal that was originally reached. We do not know, uh, and this is, I think, something that's not gotten sufficient attention, that the meeting that was held to smooth all this over was on June 29th, and we haven't heard anything since. That's a long gap in our knowledge. So in any event, what we have is a situation of... Uh, Factually, all I can say is that Putin's failed, failed adventure, his imperial adventure in 
Ukraine is causing enormous disarray at the very top of the security and military apparatus in Moscow, in, in the Kremlin itself. Factually, that's all we can do. Everything else, however, is uh, interesting, fascinating speculation. Has the leader of the Wagner Group been heard of or seen from or seen since? No, that's my point. <laughs> the, so uh, apparently a meeting, but no real outcome what, or proof. What, just to remind ourselves what happened, and you alluded to it, is that uh, the long-standing feud between uh, the Wagner Group, which was supposedly a private military company, uh, and now Mr. Putin has said, it isn't private at all. We've been paying for them all along, but we knew that. But that private mercenary company, the Wagner Group, has been extremely useful for Mr. Putin and his own, um, and his own foreign policy uh, in Africa in particular, uh, extending all the way over to Libya. Very lucrative business arrangements have been made. These are mercenaries. These are really bloody mercenary uh, killers who were the only effective component of the military operation in Ukraine. They were the ones that took Bakhmut eventually, although today it looks as if they might, uh, that might have changed. But the feuding at the top really broke out into the open, and Mr. Prigozhin has, has very vituperatively feuded, uh, pungently feuded with the chief of the general staff, as well as the minister of defense. The coup, apparently, that we're talking about was that he apparently planned to capture them, physically capture the two top leaders when they visited Rostov on Don, a key coordinating cog in the war against Ukraine. That didn't work, and then he decided to march on Moscow. And as you know, that stopped. He, he was only 200K away, and then they stopped. And we don't know why. There's a fascinating report, Scott, out of, out of um, the chief of the intelligence for Ukraine talking to Reuters, saying that, uh, well, the reason that, that everything changed and what happened was that in addition to marching on toward Moscow, one part of the Wagner group branched off toward a nuclear facility and mm. that they were on the edge of capturing very small nuclear devices. They're calling them backpack nukes. And at that changed the equation for everybody. And then a deal was struck with Belarus and, uh, and Mr. Putin and Prigozhin to, you know, de deescalate all that. We, ha we don't really know the full nature of any agreement that was made. We just know it's the, the the, whatever it was stopped, the March of Justice stopped. And then this reconciliation meeting, if that's what it was, on June 29th, uh, along the way, Prigozhin <laughs> stopped off in St. Petersburg to pick up a few things from his mansion. This is after uh, he was supposedly exiled to Belarus. Uh, he picked up a lot of cash and a whole bunch of weapons. And then later, those were officially returned to him. So there's a lot of mystery going on. Uh, we'll have to see how it all ultimately shakes out. Um, uh, really quickly, we've only got about 30 seconds left. Can't let you go without asking you about uh, NATO welcoming Sweden, Ukraine, not so quickly. Obviously, uh, NATO countries concerned if NATO becomes, uh, Ukraine becomes part of NATO, then all of a sudden World War III starts. What are, what are your thoughts of what's happened today? There will be a lot uh, done on behalf of Ukraine. This is a war summit of NATO. The, the primary focus is, in fact, Ukraine. Ukraine will not get that map. Uh, in fact, they're, they're saying we, we won't we'll suspend that map, the normal map, but uh, NATO is not ready to actually admit 
Ukraine, but Ukraine will have an upgraded connective tissue directly with uh, NATO and that within the NATO um, membership, there will be an umbrella providing bilateral uh, guarantees of security. There'll be a lot more equipment and uh, training pledges made. But Ukraine really said, we belong in NATO, and NATO is saying not quite yet because we can't go to war. Mm. We can't have World War III with Russia. But Ukraine is showing the way ahead for us, and Ukraine belongs in NATO. Fascinating times. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, As we know, the big NATO meetings are going on. All the leaders are there. And good news today that NATO has welcomed Sweden into uh, the realm. However, uh, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, said is very upset that uh, there is no timetable for his country's membership into NATO, which is, remember when this all started, it wasn't about joining NATO. And now, of course, the Russian invasion being what it is, uh, obviously those countries that weren't even involved in NATO before are asking to join. Um, but obviously when one NATO country gets attacked, everybody joins in. If... Uh, if if Ukraine is accepted into NATO at this point, it literally turns the Russian invasion into uh, World War III. Therefore, uh, many NATO members wanting that conflict resolved before uh, Ukraine being let in. To talk about all of this and what it means moving forward, Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. And with us now, Arl, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Your thoughts at what happened today surprised Sweden's in and that uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky is upset. There's no timeline here. It was a day when considerable progress had been made, but there were also disappointments. Now, Sweden is on the verge of getting in. We have to be very careful because we are dealing with uh, Recep Erdogan, the Turkish dictator, who is a master at manipulating uh, other countries uh, in NATO, as well as as extracting the maximum number of concessions. And so the next step is that he has agreed to, in a sudden shift in position, to take the membership of Sweden to the Turkish parliament. There shouldn't be a problem, but he is someone who can change his mind so quickly that I would be cautious until we have the actual signing of that accession <laughs> where the parliament of Turkey has ratified it. Hungary said that they will go along as well because the Hungarian uh, uh, prime minister had also not been in favor of Sweden joining. But it seems very, very close. And I think uh, there is a lot to celebrate in that uh, very likely accession. Now, in the case of Ukraine, there has been Disappointment because what President Zelensky had said was that he wants to see in NATO that does not hesitate. In uh, short, what he wants to get from NATO is a timeline. He appreciates that it's not possible for NATO to have Ukraine joined right now because then they would need to invoke Article 5, which would mean that they would be in a fight against Russia. I don't know if that would necessarily mean a third world war because Russia is not a superpower 
And I mm. think the nuclear threat that they're making is largely empty. Putin is not someone who wishes to commit suicide. This is a man who wears $400 Brioni shirts and uh, uh, when he exercises, wears a $2,500 Loro Piano silk and cashmere tracksuit. These are not the kind of people who are willing to have an all-out nuclear war where humanity or at least uh, uh, the populations in the countries affected in that war directly uh, would be devastated. But uh, this is not what Zelensky expects. But a timeline means that Russia would not have a veto. It means that Ukraine's membership would not be negotiated with Russia. And I think this is what Ukraine wants to make sure, that uh, they are grateful for the help that NATO has given them, and NATO has offered more help. They are creating a NATO-Ukraine council where they say Ukraine would sit as uh, unequal, and that would be basically bringing Ukraine into the antechamber of NATO. But then, you know, there was a NATO-Russia council as well, uh, where Russia Hmm. did not take full advantage of it, but it had the possibility of blocking some things. So this is a tricky kind of development that uh, can, can cut both ways. Uh, would the timeline uh, that, that Zelensky is suggesting, would that help force Putin's hand? In other words, we've talked about this just dragging on and dragging on and dragging on forever uh, with no, with just destruction after destruction. If they put a timeline on it, I don't know, say one year from now, uh, then Ukraine will start the discussions to come into NATO. Uh, does Can Putin... Uh, 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 interpret that as if we don't get something done by the end of, of the year, then obviously we're going to have uh, bigger fish to fry here. H- how does Putin feel about all of this? Well, he's made all sorts of threats, but he made these threats uh, versus uh, um, Finland, which is now a member of NATO and has an 830-mile border with hmm. Russia. And uh, Sweden is very likely to get in now that uh, Turkey has switched uh, uh, the approach that uh, they were taking for several several months. And so he has to live with that. And it's amazing how he can rationalize things away. I mean, look at the way he's trying to rationalize the way that insurrection that was led uh, by Prigozhin, he's mm-hmm. trying to make that sound like a, a chance for unity. Uh, the, the Wagner troops are loyal. He had a meeting, supposedly, with... Uh, uh, Prigozhin, where Prigozhin said, well, this was not meant to be against Vladimir Putin. So uh, Vladimir Putin's ability to manipulate the Russian media and to rationalize away uh, setbacks uh, is quite uh, quite uh, remarkable. Uh, and he is throwing everything he's got at Ukraine. So it's not as if, uh, you know, if uh, NATO says that we are going to bring Ukraine in, this will make him really angry and is really going to bomb uh, Ukraine, short of nuclear weapons, there's nothing that is held back on. So is it just a matter of time before Ukraine joins NATO? This is what we don't know, that uh, uh, the declaration is that Ukraine will be in NATO. But then, of course, this was said back in 2008 at the Bucharest conference. So one can appreciate the nervousness of the Ukrainian president and of the Ukrainian leadership, and also the Baltic states. The leader of uh, Lithuania made it very clear that he was not happy with this decision uh, in in NATO. And so they don't want any possibility that somehow 
under uh, weak leadership from United States and Germany, which sadly has often been the case, uh, Ukraine, even if it begins to win more of its territory back in a major way, uh, will be forced into a position where uh, Russia has to be uh, appeased. Uh, and the West uh, has said, we are not going to allow Russia to have uh, a veto. Well, if Russia is not going to have a veto, it's reasonable for Zelensky to ask, in that case, why do you not give us a timeline? At the end of the day, um, two countries that weren't going to be joining NATO uh, are joining NATO, uh, Ukraine perhaps in the future and such. This all started because Putin was worried NATO countries were invading him. How, well, how can you keep claiming victory here when more countries are joining NATO? You have to be remarkably creative in the case of uh, of Putin, because if you look at this objectively, any rational planner, uh, strategist in the Kremlin would view this as a nightmare situation. Yeah. Uh, uh, now they have a much longer front already with uh, Russia, with uh, NATO because of uh, Finland. Sweden joins, that's going to be a powerful country with a great deal of military potential and uh, very high-level technology. They build uh, uh, terrific uh, and very sophisticated fighter aircraft, and uh, they have the capacity to also produce submarines and and other uh, large-scale weapons uh, systems. Russia is under the kind of... uh, set of sanctions, which is not brought to its knees, but it is eroding away at the Russian uh, at the Russian economy. Ukraine uh, now will never want to be part of the Russian, or a Russian empire, because despite the fact that Vladimir Putin has claimed that there are no independent Ukrainian people, there's no such thing as a Ukrainian nationality, even if this had been true before the war, and it wasn't, it certainly is not correct right now. There's very much a Ukrainian identity that will not uh, want to be subsumed into some kind of Russian uh, uh, identity. Uh, his relationship with China has become one where Russia is more and more of a vassal state. So it's hard to uh, see how uh, any Russian leader could have been more destructive to Russian interests, never mind the horrific mm. tragedy that he's brought to Ukraine, but he has brought real disaster to Russia, but he still is in power. Uh, and uh, he may stay stay in power for a while. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, the latest on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and NATO as well. Arl, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. There's been lots of chatter uh, of late in regard to uh, our correction system, whether it's uh, Paul Bernardo being released from a maximum to a medium security prison, whether it's people who are out on bail committing more crimes, and you know the latest situation with a horrific video in a TTC subway car uh, where a stabbing takes place, finding out the backstory of uh, that suspect and in, in how, again, heavily involved in the criminal justice system and shouldn't have been on the street. Where do we draw the line? Uh, it seems that... Uh, if, it seems that we're favoring uh, the suspects and the criminals more than we are the victims. Ari Goldkind is with us, Toronto criminal lawyer and legal expert with us now. Ari, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Well, Scott, good to be with you. 
You know, many will say, Ari, uh, people who are out on bail are innocent until proven guilty, but there's a big difference between people who uh, are going through the system for the first and second time and those that are going through uh, after the third, fourth, or fifth and have multiple convictions. Is there a solution here, Ari, other than politics and going around in circles? Well, besides that the correctional system has to be totally corrected, because down is up and up is down. You're never going to get any meaningful change here, and the public are going to be left as guinea pigs until the wokeness, political correctness, whatever you want to call it of the day, gets re-engineered where the only thing that matters are two things. Truth, which is completely absent from this discussion, and the concept of dangerousness. And your introduction was quite right, because every time that trope or cliche is used, and it's an important one. I mean, the charter codifies presumed innocent. That's for the purposes of a conviction or a trial, okay? That we don't convict anybody at trial until the crown meets their burden. But there is a significant difference between somebody who's never been arrested before. They either get me too or there's an allegation between two, you know, a husband and a wife who are having an argument and one pushes the other. That person should likely get bail. Their whole life will be turned upside down if they don't. And there's every reason to believe that if they're put on bail, they'll behave. You introduced Moses Lewin. Let's call him by the name, the subway stabber. This man is on three, two to three at least separate bails for crimes of violence, including an eight-inch fishing knife, break and enters, fleeing from police in a car, dangerous operation, you name it, doesn't come to court all the time, and the left hand doesn't speak to the right. And here's the why that matters, Scott, because nobody seems to care about this unless the victim is somebody they know. This man, because of the system not working, led to an innocent person It was a fist fight on the subway, and then somebody pulls a knife, which is the very definition of bringing a knife to a fist fight, ends up almost being murdered. You cannot have a discussion about bail, bail reform, without talking about crime, criminality, who commits it, what the statistics tell us. And I can assure you, Scott, That conversation in this country is never going to happen. Uh, Is it or isn't it? And I'll switch subjects. Follow along with me here. We were just talking about housing and tents and such. It seems nobody wants to build housing. We've been talking about this for 10, 20, 30 years. Is having people living in tents in our parks across the country enough to make people realize we need to build more houses? Is having this sort of crime happen in our subway systems, on our streets, is it going to make people wake up? This is a solvable problem. I actually don't think it's solvable. I'm going to disagree with you in a very respectful way. You know, I think the world of you, but I don't think this is a solvable problem. I'm not going to give you a lawyer answer. Why? I'm going to give you just a normal citizen why. When you have the federal government welcoming between 1.4 million to 1.6 million new Canadians per year, Scott. That's the real number. Anybody can go Google it. Read John Iveson's column just the other day. Students, temporary, foreign workers, forget the 425,000 number, which is a total gaslight. When you have 1.4 new million people coming to this country and you have the moronic mayors of my city going, I'm going to build affordable housing with my bare hands and by the skin of my chinny chin chin. It's a complete lie. 
This is all a disgrace at the federal level. It's not a debate that will ever happen. All three major parties, Scott, are in lockstep on it. They are not in line with the Canadian public's views, but it's a third rail. And when you're asking about encampments or housing, this is only going to get worse because as you saw in my city, my city, which is run in a pretty left way by John Tory, who is a a Tory or a conservative by his last name only. And by the way, I like the man, respect the man, but the idea that he ran a conservative city is insane. (laughs) Now you have what you have and you have an encampment issue, which is horrible in my city. It will spread worse to yours. I guarantee it. And rather than people thinking it's just a homeless issue where people are just down on their luck because their last paycheck bounced. No, this is a drug issue. This is a crime issue. This is a quality of life issue. And it's a public safety issue. And unfortunately, if you think police should be proactive, Scott, and I'll be quick here because I know we got to wind up. Unfortunately, if you believe the police should be putting a stop to it or politicians should be putting a stop to it, why else do they exist? You get called a bunch of names. The problem is when you get called a bunch of names, nobody ever says you're wrong. They just call you a bunch of names. <laughs> well said. Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer, uh, talking about bail reforms and everything that's wrong. Ari, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Great to be with you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. A growing number of Canadians are worried that interest rates are rising faster than they can keep up. A new poll suggests, as many economists expect the Bank of Canada to deliver another rate hike this week. Polling from Ipsos Public Affairs, conducted for Global News, says the Canadians are concerned they won't be able to pay off debts, whether it's credit cards, amid higher interest rates and inflation that continue to cause pain, particularly at the grocery store. With more than five, sorry, more than four in five Canadians say they're worried that inflation could continue to make life un affordable for them. Uh, Siam Sethi with us, Vice President of Public Affairs with Ipsos Canada, is here. Siam, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, it, it seems now people are very much anxious because we are on the eve or could be another potential interest rate hike. It's this second or second series of hikes, the latest, that, that seems to be putting people over the edge. Yes, I mean, the signals are confused, right? We we hear that inflation rate is slowing down. It has been, you know, the much-awaited good news. But the concerns over inflation are not easing. And, you know, our latest poll clearly shows that 81% of Canadians are still concerned that inflation will make everyday things less affordable. And this figure has not changed since last year, despite, you know, um, the inflation rates softening. And that is because the financial pressures or the inflationary pressures have not really eased. And you spoke about the interest rate hikes. It is it is very worrisome to Canadians. 71% of Canadians feel that interest rates are rising quicker than they can adjust. And they're really finding it hard to keep up with just how fast the hiking cycle is moving. And again, these concerns have also held steady since we last tracked this metric in in November last year, I believe, and that stood at 7 and 10, even at that point in time. 
Again, it's not very often we get stressed over uh, one or two interest rates hikes. But again, Siam, this is a series of these in a row, which has just uh, uh, compounded and made make life very difficult for people. I absolutely agree. The, the rate hikes have been very aggressive over the last years. And they are, if you look at it, they are continuing to pass through to household debt payments. It's it's not that everyone is impacted in the same go, right? As more mortgage contracts or rental contracts hit the renewal cycle, the interest rates and the payouts will increase and it will continue to impact more and more Canadians. So one stream of impact is through those renewals that are, you know, coming into being affected by the interest rate hikes. And of course, the inflation growth rate has slowed, but people are still paying those higher prices. And if you look at, yes, mortgage rates is one, the increased debt loads is one, the borrowing costs are very high and people are not able to absorb them. Our poll says that 63% of Canadians are concerned that they cannot absorb any unexpected costs of over a thousand or more. That's not a very high amount and people don't even have that much of wiggle room. And that leads to, you know, more burden of debt. People have to use a line of credit to pay their credit card bill, which puts them further at, you know, insolvency risk. So it's not looking very pretty. Obviously, we're hearing reports, as you alluded to, that, you know, over time this has worked and inflation is going down. But again, we remember when it was up at 8 percent and it still hasn't dropped below those numbers. So we're still feeling the early stages uh, of this. Um, do you think that, that that Canadians feel that with the inflation rate coming down as it has, that this is enough? We should pause right now. Um. See, again, the signals are mixed. If you look at, you know, one individual, everyone is struggling to pay to pay their, you know, monthly right. uh, expenses. If food inflation is still as high as 8.3% and little has changed there. So when an average Canadian is going out to buy their groceries, their household necessities, it is still pinching them. And another really interesting concept that we have started noticing is something called shrinkflation. So inflation is one, the prices have increased, but even for the same price, people are blaming uh, this on shrinkflation, which is when product prices remains the same, but their size, quantity, or yeah. quality is reduced. We've, we've all noticed that, right? We're still paying $10 for the product, but we you know, notice that the pack size has gone down. Mm -hmm. And as high as 84% of Canadians are concerned that Shrinkflation will also impact, you know, their ability to get their money's worth. So it's really hitting them from all angles at this point. Yeah, you even notice there's one less row of cookies in the bag. It just doesn't seem right. And but but I guess in a sense this is working because now people are going to be doing less or are doing less to try to save money. Absolutely, and we are seeing um, the impact on all streams of expenses. You know, different generations are reacting differently, but everyone's doing their bit in order to, you know, get a hold on their pocketbook and their <laughs> expense list. Uh, we see that people are, you know, cutting down on dining out expenses more than half, and that's risen up since uh, we last tracked that in April. 56% uh, of Canadians say that, you know, they're cutting out on dining out. People are looking at flyers for sales 
people are using couponing or you know sales app to save money cutting back on entertainment travel you name it people are you know using all sorts of means to try to get a handle on their expenses it's it's interesting that you say travel because we we saw when the pandemic ended boom travel took off but uh, because people wanted to get out but now that's really pulled back as well that's true people are traveling and they they have been waiting to travel and um you know we we see the boom in travel industry but as high as one third of canadians or 29% i should say to be accurate and that has increased plus 4 or plus 5 points feel they they feel that they are going to cut back on travel inside the country or outside the country um so that's growing too and people want to travel but their you know their um incomes are not allowing it or their list of expenses and growing expenses are not allowing that 81% say they're worried inflation will continue to make life unaffordable, according to the latest from Ipsos. With us, Siam Sethi, Vice President of Public Affairs with Ipsos Canada. Siam, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You know, if all four uh, major political parties in the last election are all uh, promising to build a million houses, uh, you have to ask yourself what the heck we've been doing for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years and also, if if people living in tents in our parks across the land, not just major cities, small towns too, uh, all over uh, Canada, if that doesn't drive the point home that we have neglected housing, I'm not sure what will. Uh, and to continue this discussion, Hamilton's hunt for land to buy affordable housing on Hamilton's LRT corridor has so far found no suitable properties more than a year after the review started. To talk more about all of this, Brad Clark, Ward 9, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Brad, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am doing well. Thank you, Scott, for having me. So, Brad, what makes for suitable properties? Found no suitable properties uh, a year after the review started. What what means suitable? What What criteria there? From my understanding, the suitability is really related to the size of the property. So Metrolinx has purchased up 90%, or sorry, 90 properties along the 13-kilometer line. There are still more properties that they are interested in purchasing. And they had indicated to us early on in this process that they wouldn't use all of that land. And surplus land could be, of course, used for affordable housing. Unfortunately, we've not uncovered that land, um, and we really don't have a commitment from the provincial government or from Metrolinx to uh, step up and say, okay, we're going to make some of these developments along this line's affordable housing. Uh, What does Metrolinx say when you bring this to them after that's what they suggested initially? Uh, We're not getting a lot of communications back from Metrolinx. The federal government indicated that their uh, $1.4 billion contribution was conditional on affordable housing being built along the line. Everyone seemed to coalesce around that. That makes sense. Um, but it we're not getting warm and fuzzies that that's going to happen. And my concern is that the Ministry of Transportation generally tells its agencies that if you're selling surplus property, you have to sell it for the highest and best use, which is rarely affordable housing. Uh, were there any, ever any numbers put on any of that? Um, you know, yes, we're going to you know, uh, designate a certain amount. A certain, is there, was there anything concrete put as to what that might be? 
know and we would appreciate it if there was. You know, they indicated that 10% of the properties that they, that they owned or 10% of the properties along the line they would support with affordable housing. That would give us something to shoot for. We don't have that commitment from them. And I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous personally that the cost escalations that may occur on the LRT line may tempt Metrolinks to simply sell it for the highest price to mm-hmm. offset some of that cost escalation. So we're really in no man's land. We don't know what what's really happening, and and we're we're sounding the alarm, I guess, to the provincial government. You got to step up and say, okay, this is what's going to happen. Are there signature sites, areas, sweet spots you're specifically looking for? Uh, not me personally. Uh, I believe the city made it very that like property near the um, the stations. Uh, right. That would be ideal for affordable housing, especially for folks who um, need geared to income housing and and are disabled. So having it close to that that station uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, but we really what we really need is the three levels of government to sit down and say, okay, we've agreed on this LRT. Now, where are we going to put the affordable housing? And how uh, is it going to work? How late can you wait for this discussion, Brad? Because as you said, this is a year after the review has started. Obviously, um, you know, we're not seeing shovels in the ground at this point. But as you mentioned, these things start to progress and, and do quickly. Uh, at what point um, does this does this come an essential to become an essential an essential discussion? It has to happen now. I think it does have to happen now uh, because what we're seeing is we're seeing properties being purchased also by developers. Um, they're they're consolidating properties along their route in the hopes that they're going to submit a, an application down online, which complete sense on our arterial line. Um, but we, 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 you're breaking up a little bit there. Can you, sorry, Brad, you're breaking up a little bit there. Can you repeat your last sentence? Yep. We're being respectful as we, and we have the your minister to work with us and Metrolinks to establish where the affordable housing is going to be built. Do you get the feeling that, uh, as you said, uh, the best will be plucked and then whatever's left and nobody wants, uh, that's what will be left for affordable housing and it will not be suitable for what you're talking about? I'm trying hard not to be a cynic. <laughs> so where where does this go now, Brad? I mean, obviously, this is a discussion that has to be had. Uh, you talked about the province. Is the province listening to this at this point? I believe they are listening. Um, I, the, the challenge, I think, is that the province is saying Metrolinx is an arm's length division of the government for their decisions, and Metrolinx is looking to the ministry direction. And so someone has to step into this and say, let's sort this out. What's the city's role here? Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, as things are being built, can you say, hey, here's our LRT, it's being built. Uh, you said affordable housing. I don't see it anywhere, and this thing's half done. Uh, is that the sort of story we want? Uh, Metrolinx wants to break uh, when this is halfway done. I mean, it, it just seems that at the end of the day, the city has some sort of say in this, or not? We—that's a good question. The memorandum of understanding puts it all in Metrolinx 
bailiwick. So Metrolinx has control over the design, everything on, on the line. But there were commitments made from the province and the feds to build affordable housing. And we're not seeing those commitments translated into actual actions and decisions that will enable the city to move forward with new year to in housing. Will that not be up to Metro Links to prove? And and you know, as you said earlier, obviously costs rise, things you know, the profits here, we're going to take it. But uh, you know, how's Metro Links going to look after all of this talk uh, that none of this uh, affordable housing or or anything is is a value or in suitable areas? Uh, how do you put that toothpaste back in the tube? Metrolinx is not the housing authority body. Metrolinx is a transportation agency. Yeah. And so the province needs to step up in order to make this happen. What happens next? What's the short term here? I would hope that over the summer there are some meetings between the mayor and premier and the minister, and, and we come to an agreement. In my opinion, that's what Brad Clark with us, Ward 9 Councillor, City of Hamilton. Hamilton's hunt to buy land for affordable housing along the LRT corridor has so uh, so far uh, proved to be fruitless and uh, requiring meetings with the province and Metro Links to see what the uh, way is moving forward. Brad Clark, Ward 9 City Councillor with the City of Hamilton. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. You get that <clears throat> swallow in? I did. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out to everybody, Mr. Radley. Oh, like, like it's the what pot are you, calling the program, it's what the are you, the program the director? Black, let me tell you, it is. Hang uh, on a sec. Hang on a sec. I'm going to let one. I get a little two-cheek sneak go here. Oh, no, no, don't do All right. Those. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about housing because okay. this this pisses me off to no end. Okay, um, I remember back in the McGinty days, he was not interested in building any infrastructure. He's not infrastructure, not interested in expounding uh, or uh, uh, urban expansion in any way. Uh, it was all going to be infill, and of course, NIMBYism. None of that ever happens. And let's be serious: there isn't enough infill to fix the housing problem. All four major political parties last election got to build a million houses. How did we get there? Because they've done nothing. They've done nothing in the last 5, 10, 20, uh, 15, 25 years or so. Now, all of a sudden, we have people living in tents, not just in Hamilton, right the way across the country, in towns big and small, in cottage country, in urban centers. People are living in tents. And it, it, this is a completely, completely self-inflicted wound because for decades build was a bad word and now we're all of a sudden trying to play catch up if having people living in tents in our parks doesn't it doesn't prove we have a housing crisis a housing shortage in all income levels what the hell does? Is this going to motivate people to get off their ass and build, baby, build? We have fallen behind here. Scott, Your thoughts? A, well, there's a second part to this that you've left out, and I don't think you've left it out intentionally, and that is for the longest time, here and elsewhere, the word developer has been a four-letter word. Bad word. They're bad people. They're get horrible them out people. of here. They're not yes. just bad people, Scott. They're, they're sinners. They're, every intent is evil, and they want to make money and that's a horrible thing. And, and you know what? Okay, that's, that's fine. You can hold that opinion, 
But whether you like it or not, we need people who are going to invest money to build things because otherwise we're reliant only on the government. And we've seen time and again, A, what you just said, where they're either not motivated to do it or B, where they actually are discouraging it or C, I got to get my swallow in or C, when they (laughs) finally get around to it. And it's so bloody expensive because now everybody says, oh, it's government. We can tap the government for way higher costs than we would get from the private sector. So we need to somehow, and I wrote this a while back and got a ton of people writing in going, you're an idiot. That's fine. But we need developers. We need developers. We need people who will come and build stuff. And yes, that means they are going to make money. That's how this works. They are not doing this as philanthropists. Some do. But they are doing it because that's their oh, business. Oh, in the land of, in the land of socialism, it's just stand there. Don't worry, Scott. We'll hand you some money and give you a shack to live in. If you if the government builds, if we are waiting for the government to build enough affordable housing for all yeah. the people, a we will be waiting forever. B once they get it built, yeah, you know what? They may make it so that it is there, and so it doesn't cost the user all that much. Money, there's not a magical money tree in Queens Park or in Ottawa, Parliament Hill. We, all the rest of us end up paying an extraordinary amount for all of this. We, there has to be some give and take here where we lean on the private sector to do this. Lessons learned, lessons learned. How did this happen? Whose problem is this? Who caused this? Do you want me to answer it for you? Politicians and environmentalists and nimbyism. No, no, no. Build's a bad word. Oh, Build. wait a second. This is a self-inflicted problem. No, you're you're totally wrong. This is entirely Doug Ford's fault. And <laughs> this has only happened in the past six years since he's become yeah. pr- uh, premier. Look, yeah. uh, you can you can take shots at Doug Ford for all kinds of things, uh, and, and that's fair game. And easy are, target. And, and there and look, and there are things that Doug Ford has done that are worthy of shots being taken. But you've also pointed out this did not happen. Just like our medical system didn't get to the point yep. where it was collapsing overnight. And our long-term care facilities didn't just get bad when Doug Ford took over. The, these have been problems that have been allowed to fester for a long, 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 yep. long, long time. And it's going to take a long, 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 long time to turn it around. All right. Uh, what's coming up after six o'clock on your show? Well, we're just going to keep the upbeat stuff going. I <laughs> know uh, one, one, one of the things we're going to be talking about, and this is stunning. There is a new report out that says by 2050 around the world, there are going to be a billion people with diabetes. And they're saying the, the cost of this health, but also economic cost of this is going to be extraordinary. And one of the reasons, Scott, that, w- that some people are suggesting is that we have changed the definition of what's healthy. Rather than encouraging people to get healthy, we now say, (laughs) be comfortable in your own body, but your body doesn't say, oh, well, now that I'm supposed to be comfortable, I'm not going to have diabetes for being 200 pounds overweight. Uh, the gym class went the same direction as the tech wing, and now we have no trades. Explain. Yeah, that's, uh, come on. It's not not hard to figure out, is it? It's like, it's like we're in a bus and we're taking our hands off the wheel and closing our eyes and just going, wee and hope the government takes care of us. It's unbelievable. As long as we completely self-inflicted problem, as long as we say it's okay, it's okay. Except when it's not okay, because saying it's okay, doesn't actually make things okay. Okay. 
Uh, Scott Radley coming up next. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Jim writes, echoing what I'm bellowing here, people are living in tents in our parks. We need more housing of all kinds. Build, baby, build. Build, baby, build. Keep right, except to pass. 